to the first piano concerto by Franz Liszt, played here at the Watford Coliseum by Piers Lane, with the BBC Concert Orchestra conducted by Keith Lockhart, and a classic example of virtuosic piano writing from the early 19th century Romantic tradition. When you hear Liszt's name, it's exactly this kind of technically demanding playing that comes to mind. Liszt was, by reputation, one of the greatest pianists who ever lived. He was born in 1811, and he emerged as an artist at a time when the cult of the virtuoso was at its height. Like today's movie stars, virtuoso musicians were true celebrities. And like our pop stars, they went on tour. Liszt and Paganini were among those who toured Europe and beyond in the 1830s and 40s. It wasn't uncommon to find two performers pitted against each other like gladiators, often playing their own music and scoring points in front of a captive and adoring audience. So it's not surprising that the image that we have today of Liszt is coloured by that part of his career, those early years that were summed up so well by the German poet Heinrich Heine as the age of Listomania. In this edition of Discovering Music, we're going to be looking in detail at the first and second of Liszt's piano concertos, and given all that we know, we might expect to hear music written just as a vehicle for exhibitionism. The extract that we just heard was definitely virtuosic and quite demanding to start the programme with. The technical demands for the soloist are certainly part of the reason why today pianists approach these concertos with a bit of trepidation. But although the idea of virtuosity is very close to both these concertos, there's more than bravura and technical display to captivate a listener. As a composer, Liszt is exploring and experimenting with form and orchestration. These concertos reflect something of the avant-garde philosophy and aesthetic of Liszt's time, and they're both subtly constructed, the result of many years of careful crafting and revising over a period of about 25 years. In these pieces, Liszt sets out to advance the idea of what a romantic piano concerto was and could be. So, let's get right to the start of the first piano concerto in E-flat, which Liszt began working on in 1832. So right from the very start, there are several striking elements to the music which grab our attention. There's an arresting and heroic statement played by the strings of the orchestra, a repeated motif based on three consecutive descending notes. Succinct but visceral. And after each three-note statement come the wind section, adding to the drama with a kind of startling punctuation mark. This is, after all, the age of Byron and the romantic hero, the Gothic novel and an artistic fascination with the supernatural. And now the moment for the soloist to launch in with a fiery display of showmanship.
Now, what we've heard so far is a kind of a preamble, a setup, and it's now that we'd expect to hear a full orchestral statement of the movement's themes. What do we mean by that? Well, let's have a look at how the first movement of a piano concerto was usually structured up to this time. The person who arguably did the most to establish the first movement form of the piano concerto back in the late 18th century was Mozart. The standard pattern was that the orchestra started alone and basically laid down the ground rules. It was the orchestra's job to announce all of the main thematic ideas that were going to then be used in the movement, and only then did the pianist get to come in. There are some exceptions to this, but they tend to be the exceptions that prove the rule. So this is the beginning of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 22 in E flat. So, like in the list, an arresting opening idea from the full orchestra. And now we're getting to know more material that's going to come back later. Notice that there's still no piano, but here's a transition that might take us to a piano entry. But still no piano. Instead, another musical idea from Mozart's orchestra. And so finally, the pianist gets a look in, starting with a little exploration of its own, before going on to revel in the material that the orchestra has already announced.
and so on. The important thing is that the orchestra has set out the stall and determined the mood and the material of the movement to come. Now, after Mozart comes Beethoven, and he starts questioning this rigid relationship between the orchestra and soloist. And you can tell that immediately from the beginnings of several of his concertos, each of which are very different. In the fourth, for example, it's the pianist who states the first theme right at the beginning of the piece before the orchestra gets a look in. And let's take another Beethoven opener, the fifth piano concerto, The Emperor. The orchestra and the pianist start off together here, but this time we have a grand flourish, a great piano cadenza, before the statement of the main themes. Now, to call these novelties would be doing Beethoven down, but if we were to listen further on into both of those concertos, we'd realize that although he does play with convention, he doesn't really mess with the standard structure that we heard in Mozart, because in both cases, the orchestra comes back in and reasserts its right to be the announcer of the movement's musical material. And this model was still the preeminent one for the virtuoso concertos that came after Beethoven. And it would seem that from what we've heard so far, it's going to be Liszt's model for his E-flat concerto as well. After all, remember the orchestra has started the piece with the main theme. Now there's a funny story because when Liszt sang that melody to his friends, he didn't just sing it straight, he added words to it. Das versteht ihr alle nicht, haha, which means none of you will understand, haha. Now, I imagine Liszt singing that with a certain amount of impish humour, but what does he really mean by it? What exactly were we not going to understand? Well, we need to find a bit more about the complicated history of this concerto. Liszt was just 14 years old when he first had a go at writing a piano concerto in 1825. Sadly, that hasn't survived. The concerto that we know as number one started life in 1832, when he was living and working in Paris. Now, this was a time when the cult of the virtuoso was really coming on strong, and Liszt was mingling with the best of them. He met Paganini, a violinist whose playing was so extreme that people were convinced they saw the devil sitting on his shoulder while he played. The sense of the Gothic never far away for the early romantics. Less devilish but equally impressive were pianists like Alcan and Chopin, who stunned the Paris audience with his playing. 
And Liszt himself was highly prized among the many now largely forgotten Turing piano virtuosi, people like Johann Peter Pixis, Friedrich Kalkbrenner, and the brothers Heinrich and Jacques Hertz. So Liszt was starting his first piano concerto against the backdrop of virtuoso Paris in the 1830s. But he didn't actually finish and publish the piece until 1857, 25 years later, during which time it had undergone five revisions and Liszt himself had developed and matured enormously. By 1857, he'd abandoned his colorful career as a performer and he was working full-time as a composer in Weimar. Now, the way in which Liszt returned again and again to his concerto to revise it, and this is true not just of the first but also of the second concerto, which we're going to come to later, it's a sign of him wanting to develop and really hone his skills as a composer and to create a distinctive and meaningful musical expression. Das versteht ihr alle nicht. None of you will understand this. This is Liszt throwing down the gauntlet to his critics. You think you know me as an artist? Well, listen on. So, picking up from where we left off, what does happen next in the music? What we're expecting is the orchestra to give us a formal announcement of all the material of the first movement, but it actually peters out after only a few bars. The piano reasserts itself, and by way of a dreamlike romantic reverie, it leads us into the second theme. So the piano is doing all of the leading, constantly interrupting the thoughts of the orchestra with fragments of its own ideas. Liszt isn't giving us a chance to hear the musical material emphatically and formulaically spelled out as per tradition. Instead, the piano is offering up and then mulling over a limited number of choice ideas, moving on to the next as if in a constant state of distraction. Now Liszt has a very interesting way of writing for the orchestra. You heard that wonderful clarinet solo there. On the whole, he draws on instruments sparingly. The textures are chamber-like and translucent. At one point, he even prunes his string section down to just two violins. 
It's almost as though Liszt is just as interested in the individual within the orchestra as he is in the orchestra as a whole body. Now, this is a familiar preoccupation for the romantic artist, the individual pitted against the world. But it's usually just the soloist who represents that in a concerto situation, and it's quite novel to find the idea being subtly explored within the body of the orchestra as well. Liszt is incredibly good at evoking fleeting moods and sentiments, and it's as though he's using the orchestra as a painter's palette, selecting colours and combinations here and there to complement the thoughts of the piano, just a clarinet, a couple of violins, the cello section. Talking of fleeting, let's carry on. Now, we're still in the first section of the concerto, and although the music is jumping all over the place, it still feels satisfyingly homogenous. That's because in the background, that three-note falling figure that we heard at the very beginning keeps growling away and cementing it all together. But it's also clear that from what we've heard, Liszt isn't going to dwell too long on any one thought. And there also doesn't seem to be a fixed point in which themes are developed. Instead, we get a sequence of short statements and restatements. And in between them, what could be expressed as moments of fantasy. Liszt journeys from one idea to the next as though he's clutching at something half-remembered. The fragments are contemplative, and they seem to project temporally beyond what's being presented. This idea is crucial to the aesthetics of the early romantics. Well, here's how the first section of Liszt's first concerto ends, and listen carefully to what the timpani play in the final bars.
Very gently, almost ghost-like, the timpani is marking out the rhythm of a march. Perhaps we could just hear it on its own. Now remember that because that march idea is going to take on a special significance at the very end of this concerto. Let's go on now to another of these half-remembered moments. We're moving on now to the second of the four sections of the concerto. It begins rather like a traditional slow movement, an affecting idea from the solo piano that rather reminds me of a Chopin nocturne. But the second section is short-lived, and once again the music quickly transforms into something else as the nocturne idea is forgotten. And here is Liszt's carefully tuned ear for orchestral colour again. Liszt, one of the pioneers in the use of orchestral timbre as an expressive device in itself.
Ladies and gentlemen, the triangle, in this context, a pretty controversial orchestral sound. It wasn't new to the orchestra by any means, but it hadn't been used as a solo instrument before. And for many critics, this was one innovation too many. Some, rather disparagingly, like to call this the triangle concerto. But Liszt isn't messing around. He's very specific about how the triangle should be played here. This is what he writes in the score. The triangle here is not to be beaten clumsily, but in a delicate, rhythmical manner with resonant precision. He even advised one player to perform it using the edge of a tuning fork. Liszt's music is always highly characterized. If you listen to a lot of it, you start to recognize distinct characters cropping up again and again. In this case, the music is elfin-like. It reminds me of his transcendental study, Will o' the Wisp. And I wonder if the triangle and the piano part, too, don't also hark back to Paganini, whose second violin concerto is nicknamed La Campanella, with an almost gothic evocation of a tinkling bell, which Liszt famously transferred to the piano in one of his grand études. Well, towards the end of this third section of the concerto, we start to find ourselves on familiar ground again, hearing a return of music from the beginning. For the fourth and final section, Liszt devises a highly characterized transformation of the themes that we've already heard. It's the march. Here, as an example, is the theme from the start of the slow second section. And now here is the same theme transformed into the march that begins the last section of the concerto. And that is what we call thematic transformation. Now, I've been talking about the four parts of the concerto as sections. We're much more used to hearing them called movements. But although in this score they're very clearly marked and they have strong individual characters, Liszt really wanted the concerto to be thought of as a single span of music, with themes, like the one we've just heard, recurring throughout. It's another way of evoking a transitory and transformational feeling in music. And yet, paradoxically, when the opening material comes back at the end, even more excited and intense, the concerto suddenly gains a new sense of weight and purpose to propel it to its end. 
There's a real sense of arrival. What we thought was flighty and capricious when we first met it turns out to be a pre-echo of the work's triumphant conclusion. And Liszt himself was really rather pleased with the ending. It is only an urgent recapitulation of the earlier subject matter with quickened, livelier rhythm, he explained, but this kind of binding together and rounding off a whole piece at its close is somewhat of my own. Liszt's Piano Concerto No. 1 in E-flat, played by Piers Lane with the BBC Concert Orchestra conducted by Keith Lockhart. You're listening to this edition of Discovering Music on BBC Radio 3 with me, Sarah Moore-Peach, looking at Liszt's first and second piano concertos. And so we come to the second in A. We've touched on the idea in the first of transformation, the constant metamorphosis of themes within a single movement structure. And this time, Liszt takes it a step further. Like in the first concerto, the second took Liszt a quarter of a century to write, and it went through many revisions. He began it in 1839, and he finally published the version that we know today in 1863. Liszt actually conducted the first performance of this concerto, unlike the first one where he'd played soloist to Berlioz's conductor. This time round, Liszt entrusted the solo piano part to a favourite pupil of his, Hans von Bronsar. Now, this second concerto doesn't feel like it's built around a traditional three- or four-movement structure. In this, it's very different to the first. This whole single-movement concerto is based on the constant transformation of subsequent ideas. It's like the sonic equivalent of turning the barrel of a child's kaleidoscope round and round. Well, what's particularly interesting is that the very idea of transformation is embedded in the musical material which Liszt goes on to transform. So let's have a listen to the opening material. We meet it in bar one, and it's a slow, plaintive melody which grows out of an unusual sequence of chords. I say unusual because they don't follow the set of rules which usually governs the relationship between keys. Instead, they slide into each other by means of a common note, something that we call a pivot. It sounds a little bit technical, but you can hear it if we break down the opening phrase of the concerto. So we start with a chord of A major, Now, if we hold the home note of that chord, an A, that note also appears in the middle of an otherwise unrelated chord of F major. So Liszt has used that A as a pivot to take us from one chord to the next. In fact, Liszt now spices it up by adding a discordant E flat. 
This gives a feeling of uncertainty and instability. Now, if we hold on to those two notes, A and also the discordant E flat, they take us onto the next chord. So the harmonic base for Liszt's opening melody is in itself based on a cycle of transformations. Incidentally, this idea of a pivot note isn't a new one at all. You find them all over Beethoven and Schubert as a very useful way of getting from one key to another rather remote one. But a pivot note is usually a clever device. It's not normally a fundamental part of the main musical material like it is here. So let's hear the whole theme proper now, and we'll hear how the melody gets a lot of its character from these disconcerting harmonic shifts. You wouldn't come across a theme like that before the romantics of the early 19th century. It's a melody suffused with melancholy, world-weary, if you like. But more importantly, it seems free to move around as it pleases. It's like a wanderer. The Wanderer in German was a romantic archetype as close to Liszt as it was to Schubert and Schumann and many other early romantics. Now, the piano comes in next with the first transformation of the theme, reducing it to its harmonic bones. A halo of sound wraps itself around the piano line, a mixture of woodwinds and strings. And there's an ongoing feeling of romantic reverie, which we touched on in the first concerto. Now, in the next transformation, Liszt inverts the texture. What was high, spacious, and ethereal there now becomes low and weighted and impassioned. Liszt's genius for creating contrast through these transformations is what keeps the music constantly on an edge. And from the slow, introspective beginning, the musical narrative soon builds in tension and drama. You can imagine a musical portrait of one of Byron's heroes, like Child Harold, as he journeys through a constantly changing landscape. The archetypal Byronic hero, Child Harold struggles with integrity, he's prone to mood swings, he's disrespectful of authority, an exile and an outcast. And you can imagine him here battling his inner demons.
In fact, musical characterizations of the demonic were another popular ingredient of early romantic music. Think of the witch's Sabbath from the Symphonie Fantastique by Berlioz. Liszt was at the first performance. Or the song Erlkönig by Schubert, or even Liszt's own Mephisto waltzes and his Tortentanz. Again, all of Liszt's thematic transformations are transformations of character rather than just something abstractly musical. At no point in this concerto does Liszt vary material through the use of a structural device like a fugue or a cannon in the way that Brahms would have done. They're transformations, not variations. At the first great climax to the concerto, Liszt presents the pianist with a brief respite, while the orchestra introduces a new and intensely energetic theme, and this really is the stuff of witches' sabbaths. Now, gradually that idea subsides and the music gives way to what seems like a new theme, rich and melodious. But let's take a closer look at that. If we place the stresses in slightly different places, it turns out that this new theme is in fact none other than a clever transformation of the earlier high-octane orchestral idea, that witch's Sabbath. So let's turn now to the heart of the second piano concerto, and here Liszt transforms the opening thematic idea into a triumphant military march. This section has come under quite a lot of criticism in recent times. To modern ears, the music can seem quite vulgar, and several critics have argued that it cheapens the overall gravity of the work, undermining the rich potential which was suggested at the beginning of the concerto. I'm not entirely sure about this. Today, we can hear military marches as trite, and we're used to them being laced with irony. Think of Mahler. But Liszt was writing this at a time when much of Europe was in the throes of revolution, small nations striving for independence, for political autonomy from larger imperial powers. And the spirit of revolution became entwined with the early romantic sensibility. There's a parallel between the politics of emerging states and a romantic philosophy of the empowered individual. Byron, in the mid-1820s, the embodiment of the romantic ideal, died while fighting for Greece against the Ottoman Empire. With this in mind, maybe we can hear Liszt's military march as a metaphor for the triumph of the romantic spirit over adversity, an affirmation of the romantic ethos. <laughs> So there's more than just virtuoso showpieces to these two concertos by Liszt. 
as I suggested at the beginning of this discovering music, he sets out to reflect something of the philosophy and the aesthetic of the early Romantic movement, and the ideals expressed by virtuosity are only a part of that. Liszt is offering up his own solution to the question of what a Romantic piano concerto could be.